0: My name is Chad. I'm the senior pastor here at Sovereign Grace. It's good to be in the pulpit again. I am thankful to the Lord continually for the people whom he has blessed us with to preach the word, the team that he's developed here, so that you don't become reliant upon a man, but you become reliant upon the word of God. So we give thanks to him for that grace. With that said, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119, verse 129 through 136. We are, I'll remind you, a people under the Word of God, which means we want you to follow along with us in the Word of God and see that the things we are saying are so. Psalm 119 and verse 129. I'll be reading from there through verse 136. This is pay. If you follow along with us, this psalm was broken down by the Hebrew alphabet. This particular week, we're on pay. Next week, Sade. We just did Ion. Those are eight-verse chunks that you have broken around the Hebrew alphabet. Psalm 119, verse 129. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant, because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. This is the word of the Lord. Let us give thanks. Father, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, prepare our hearts to receive the Word of God for what it is, your holy, infallible, and errant, sufficient Word. Cause us to take you on the authority of your Word. Conform our minds to the pattern of sound doctrine. Father, we recognize that it is on the Lord's Day in the gathered congregation that the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, speaks through his word. May your spirit apply that word to our hearts and minds. We recognize that apart from your spirit's work, we would not receive the word for what it is. It would be a dead letter to us. And so we pray your spirit would be at work, that he would be at work to make this an aroma of life to everyone in the room. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In our current cultural moment, we tend to see all of our problems as external oppression from some enemies or some offenders who are against us. We tend to see all of our problems in that light. Even our own sin is caused by some external oppression or oppressor who's against us. My parents and what they did in raising me, it's their fault that I sinned. My spouse, it's their fault that I sinned. My government, it's their fault that I sinned. This enemy, it's their fault that I sinned. Uh, We could go down the list of things that we think causes us to sin. But what seems to be universally true is that we tend to see all of our problems through the lens of external opposition from offenders against us. And we tend to think that all the solutions to our problems are either grounded in therapy Self-help, or in seeing the oppressed get justice against their oppressors. In many cases, Christianity has either slipped into a self-help religion to cure your hurts and habits and hang-ups. You ever heard that sermon? How God will cure your hurts and habits and hang ups? Not how God will save you for your rebellion, your wicked rebellion against his law. That that doesn't seem like a good sermon title, right? Come this Sunday, God will save you from your wicked rebellion. It's like, oh, I don't really want to go there. Come this Sunday, God will help you with your hurts and habits and hang-ups. Oh, that sounds very gracious. That sounds good. I do have hurts and habits and hang-ups, but none of that wicked rebellion stuff. Now, God will either do that or Christianity has become some kind of social justice religion that exists to help you get yours against your oppressor. The church is going to rise up. And the church is going to put down our oppressors and give us justice. Enter today's text. This is the prayer or the song of a man, David, who has been oppressed by his enemies. He's really facing oppression. He's been mistreated, falsely accused, and suffered under the hand of unrighteous men. He suffered under the hand of King Saul, a king to whom he was loyal, whom he loved. He suffered under the hand of his own son Absalom. How does he pray? See, that's the question. We see a man who's suffering opposition, a Christian man who's suffering opposition. How does he pray? How does he sing in the midst of that oppression, in the midst of that external opposition? This is a spirit-inspired song. We don't often enough think about the Psalter as what it is, It's a set, if you will, of 150 songs that the church sings. Here's 150 God-inspired songs for the church to sing. And here we see David singing, teaching us to sing. And this morning I want to notice three emphases in this song that we ought to learn from, David. As Christians, we need to learn these emphases. First emphasis we're going to focus on is that David pants after the wondrous word of God. that We'll see that in verses 129 through 131. David is panting after, longing for the wondrous word of God. Second, we see David rest in the gracious God of that word. Did you catch that? He's panting after the wondrous word of God, and he's resting in the gracious God of that wondrous word. We'll see that in verses 132 through 135. And then third or finally, we're going to look at how David grieves. David grieves over the rejection of God and his word. He grieves over the rejection of God and his word. So look with me at our first point or our first emphasis. He pants after the wondrous word of God, and we ought to pant after the wondrous word of God as well. It's really what I'm driving at. What David is singing here, we ought to be singing. What David is praying here, we ought to be praying. And one of his prayers or his songs is that I pant after your word. So look at Psalm 119 and verse 129 through 131. Your testimonies are wonderful. I just want to stop there for a minute. What are his testimonies? The testimonies that we find in God's word here in God's word about God's creative work in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. We hear wonderful testimonies about the order and beauty and glorious purpose of God's creation in his word. And he says, your testimonies are wonderful. We hear about God's providential governance of that creation in his word. He testifies to the fact that he governs his creation. That all things are disposed at his sovereign goodwill. He testifies to that in his word. He tells us that Christ himself upholds the universe by the word of his power. So your life and your breath and every good thing, it comes by the gracious decree of God. The hairs on your head have been numbered by him. The days that you live have been numbered by him before there was what yet one of them. His testimonies are wonderful. And we learn of his redemptive work. So his creative work, his providential work, and his redemptive work. That we're a sinful people who've rebelled against him and that he is a gracious God who has made a promise to save us and we hear about the history of the unfolding of that saving promise until the fullness of time in which it arrives in Christ. And then as Christ lives and dies and raises from the dead and send forth the Spirit to apply all that work to us, we continue to hear about these testimonies in God's word. And what David is saying is your testimonies, what you tell me about yourself in creation and providence and redemption. It's wonderful. Not just your testimonies about what you have done in your acts toward us, but what that tells us about who you are in and of yourself as our God. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Therefore, look at verse 129, my soul keeps them. In other words, it's essentially, I've discovered this treasure, and I'm gonna guard it and hold on to it and keep it. Your word is so Gloriously marvelous, wondrous, and good that I want nothing more than to keep it, to hold on to it, to believe it, to obey it, to meditate upon it day and night. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore, my soul keeps them. Look at verse 130. The unfolding of your words gives light, it imparts understanding to the simple. The unfolding of your words, scholars debate through the centuries whether the unfolding of your words is a reference in the Hebrew to the beginning of your words, i.e., is it a reference to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, where we first hear God's word, or is it a reference to the unfolding of your words, in other words, is it the entrance into creation of the word of God in written form, or is it the unfolding of that written word through the proclamation or the teaching of it? I think for a variety of reasons... The stronger argument here is that it's the unfolding of your words. Yes, God gave us his word. But if that word isn't explained, if it isn't taught, if it isn't read aloud and heard, then it doesn't give light to us. You can have a Bible that sits in the corner of your house and no light. This book isn't magical. You guys understand that, right? Sometimes we treat it like it's magical. Oh, don't drop the Bible on the floor. Well, maybe that's because it's a really expensive Bible and you don't want to get it messed up. Or maybe that's because you're superstitious, as if the book is magical. Sort of like when you say, oh, I'm not gonna have knock on wood. Every time I hear a Christian think that, I say, when do we become pagans? Worried about some kind of omens. It's not a magic book, it's the Word of God. It doesn't give you light unless you open it and understand it. When the Word of God is unfolded, what does he say? It gives light. In other words, our foolish hearts and minds are darkened by sin. Paul tells us that very clearly in Romans 1.18 and following. Our foolish hearts and minds have been darkened by sin. And then in comes the word of God. It's proclaimed to us. It's explained to us. It's not only read to us but the sense of it, Nehemiah 8.8, is given to us. And when that happens, light comes in. Now, There might be two different responses to that light. One is, like a cockroach that we are, we scurry off into the darkness away from the light. The other is that God's spirit drives that light into our hearts and minds so that we want more of it. Now, Jesus says that the light came into the world, but men loved darkness more than light because their deeds were evil. It is possible for me to expound the word of God to you, to teach the true sense of it, and for you to scurry off into the darkness away from it. It is also possible that as I expound it, the Spirit works in such a way that that light is something you love, rejoice in, want more of. So he says, it imparts understanding to the simple. In other words, who comes to understand the light? The simple. Now, the simple can be translated a couple of ways. In some texts, in context, this phrase, this word in the Hebrew means the foolish. That's not what it means here. In this particular context, it's referring to the infant or the child, this person who is humble and knows they need to be instructed. So who does the word give light to? It imparts this understanding to the simple, the humble, those who see their need. Verse 131, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. You know what opening your mouth and panting is like. If you ever, well, if you're like me and you go running, maybe you all run and never pant, but if I run down the street, by the time I turn the corner, I'm wanting to bend over and grab my knees and, you guys know what I'm talking about? Your mouth is wide open and you're gasping for air. You're panting. You guys have probably reached that point, every one of you, you pant because you recognize if I don't open my mouth wide and suck air in, I don't feel like I'm gonna breathe again. That's the kind of panting he's talking about. That's what he means. I open my mouth wide and I just suck in air so I survive. And what he's saying is, I open my mouth and pant after your word. I don't feel like I can go another step or like my heart will beat again or that I'll have any air in my lungs unless I'm in your word. I pant after it as the deer pants for the water. So my soul longs for you. You guys have been on those hot days in Bakersfield. I know that because you're here and not at the beach right now. And you know what it's like to be out in the heat hour after hour after hour and start to become so parched that you're dying of thirst and your mouth literally pants for water. You almost can't get into your mouth fast enough. That's how he's saying he is with regard to the word of God. I open my mouth and I pant because I long for your commandments. I long for them. I need to hear this. I need it like I need air when I'm running. I need it like I need water when I'm thirsting. I pant after it. I long for it. This is the wondrous word of God. As Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century Baptist preacher said, all the uttered words of God are wonderful in their degree. Now catch this part. Those who know them best wonder at them most. Those who know them best wonder at them most. I can tell you, and I can tell you on behalf of the entire pastoral staff, that as those who study the word all the time as a full-time job, this is what we do. We learn Greek, and we learn Hebrew, and we wrestle through the text, and we study systematic theology, and historical theology, and church history, and biblical theology, and walk through all this stuff, and you think, don't you ever get bored? No. The more we study it, the more we wonder at it, the more blown away we are. And this grace, and I want you to hear that, that is a grace of wondering at the word of God is a work of the Holy Spirit, the Word is only a treasure to those to whom the Spirit gives ears to hear and eyes to see. You only pant for the Word of God when you realize its excellency in the glorious triune God revealed in the Word of God. When you realize the unbounded and unconditional love of the Father in decreeing our salvation and the unmerited and superabounding grace purchased for us at the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ. In the beauty of the holiness wrought in us by the Holy Spirit. It's only when you see that, that you wonder at God's word, that you begin to pant for it. It's when you are taught by the Holy Spirit that for you the word of God becomes more precious than rubies, than much fine gold. It is the Holy Spirit who teaches you that this is the purest light your soul can see and the straightest and safest path your feet can tread. And it is when you see that and know that that you pant after God's word. May he be pleased. I would just, may he be pleased to cause us all to open our mouths and pant for his word. I hope you're here panting for God's word, not just fulfilling a religious duty, but wanting to hear from the Lord. We primarily gather on the Lord's day not to serve others, though we do serve others. We primarily gather on the Lord's Day not to be taken through a range of emotions, though that may occur. We primarily gather on the Lord's Day because we know that more than anything else, we need the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, to speak to us through his word. So David is that kind of man who pants after God's wondrous word. And we are to sing or pray in the same way. So let's consider our second emphasis. He not only pants after the word of God, he rests in the gracious word of God. Look at verses 132 through 135. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant. And teach me your statutes. Here's what David's doing. He was extolling the word of God in the prior verses, but now he's turning to say to the Lord, I need your grace. I need your favor. I rest or cast the weight of my burdens upon you. I need your help. See, I find the word of God to be wondrous. I pant after it. But I don't just come to the word of God because I want some word from God. I come to the word of God because I want God himself. I need you. I don't just pant after your word. I pant after hearing from you because I need you. I need you to commune with me. I need you to teach me. I need you to preserve me. I need you to keep me from sin. I need you to deliver me. I need you to help me. Look at how he brackets the whole section. Look at verse 132. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Now look at verse 135. Make your face shine upon your servant. Teach me your statutes. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Brackets this section quite nicely with make your face shine upon your servant. It sounds a lot like the Aaronic blessing. If you remember the Aaronic blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Make your face shine upon me. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, and to be gracious to you, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you, and give you peace. He's essentially praying that middle verse of the ironic blessing. I need your face to shine upon me. Another way of saying that is, another idiom for that would be something like, I need your smile upon me. What he says, I need your favor. I need it. I need your grace, if you're not for me, and if you're not actively for me in your works toward me, I have no hope. He's resting in the gracious God of the word. This is not merely I need to keep the wondrous word of God, but I need the gracious God of that wondrous word. You can hold this book in your hand, you can study this book, you can study it, you can become a scholar of it, you can learn Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, and read its original language and join us at our staff meetings and do syntactical diagrams which excite me beyond what you might imagine. I'm not kidding. <laughs> Sounds weird, but I love it. You can do all of that. But if you do not have the grace and favor of the triune Lord in this book, then all your learning is useless. It's entirely useless. We don't need the knowledge of the truth that accords with civil behavior. See, I can be an educated, biblically educated, and civilly decent unbeliever. Have you guys not met one? Civilly decent people who are biblically bright and don't believe. I know folks like that. They know the word quite well. They're morally decent people, and they don't believe. They don't believe. Somehow we have this errant notion that every unbeliever is some kind of wild pagan. They're not. The vast majority of your unbelieving neighbors are civilly decent people. Some of them are even fairly knowledgeable about the Bible. Not many in our current era, but some. I need no supernatural work of grace for any of that. I don't need a supernatural work of grace to be a civilly decent person, and I don't need a supernatural work of grace to be studious in the Bible. What we need is the knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. To know the truth in such a way that we become godly requires a work of God's supernatural grace. The Spirit takes the sound doctrine in the Word and transforms us into the image of Christ. Christianity is not a self-help project. It's not a self-help project by which we clean up our mess with God's insights and God's assistance. So you come and this week I'll tell you how God teaches you in your word how to clean up your mess in business or how to clean up your mess in marriage or how to clean up your mess in child rearing or whatever it is. Here's how you do it. Look at how insightful God is. Look at the assistance he'll give you with your self-help project. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is a death and resurrection project. Christ died for your sins. He rose for your justification. When you believe in him, you die with him, and you rise to new life in him. Our great need is not relief from mistakes and errors and trouble. Our great need is salvation in Christ. We need to die to the sinful and hell-bent world and be made new, born again, by the Spirit, through faith in Christ. That's what we need. We do not need good advice to clean up our mess. We need good news to save us from our sins. We need the grace given from the Father in the Lord Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. We do not nearly need God to do kind things for us though. We need God himself. I want you to hear that. The gospel doesn't conclude with God saved you from your sins, have a nice life. God saved you from your sins, now you've been reconciled to him, and you have him, you have him. This is a prayer for communion with the Lord. Lord, I need you near me. I need you near me. Friends, that's what the gospel delivers. Due to our rebellion against God's law, due to our sin, we were not his friends, we were his enemies. We were separated from him, and we did not have communion with him. That separation from God is eternal death. It's what it is. Hell is eternal separation from God's good and gracious presence and the experience of only his justice forever. But he sent Christ to drink the wrath of God on our behalf on the cross. Christ did that work for us. And he sent the Holy Spirit to apply that work to us through faith. So we're born again by the Holy Spirit, and we look to Christ in faith. And we're saved from the penalty of sins, but more than that, we become friends of God. We're adopted as his children. We have blessed communion with him. So here's the question I suppose I have for you. Do you know Christ? Have you repented of your sins and turned to Christ in faith? As someone who was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, David is really asking for two gifts of God's grace that he promises to his people. I want to outline those, two gifts of God's grace he promises to people. David has communion with the Lord by his grace and he wants to continue in that communion so he asks the Lord for two other graces. Look at Psalm 119, verse 133 and 135. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Keep steady my steps according to your promise. Look at verse 135. Make your face to shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. Keep steady my steps and teach me your statutes. In other words, what he's saying is, by your grace, I need you to teach me. I need you to teach me in my heart. Listen, I can proclaim words, but I can't teach you ultimately. The teacher is God. I proclaim the word of God, hopefully by the Spirit of God, and He works in your hearts. He teaches you, not me. At the end of the day, my words will just fall to the ground if the Holy Spirit doesn't drive them into your hearts and minds. I need you to teach me. I need to write your word on my heart, is what He's saying. Even as you come in on Sunday morning, are you asking the Lord to teach you? When are you walking the doors, going, preparing in the morning as you get ready, thinking, going to bed on Saturday night, meditating upon? I need you to teach me. When I walk in on Sunday morning and we sing and I hear those words, many of which I've memorized, I need you to teach them to me. When they read scripture or pray, I need you to teach me. When the word is opened and preached, I need you to teach me, I need you to do it. Are you asking for that daily when you open your Bible? I need you to teach me. Do you recognize throughout every moment of every day that your perseverance in faith, your growth in Christ is held ever and only in the hand of God. And do you humbly recognize that and beseech him to keep you safe to the end? Keep my steps steady. I will wander right off the path if you don't keep me on it. Are you asking God to teach you and preserve you as you open his Bible, hear his word? Second, he says that I don't just need your grace to teach me and preserve me, I need your grace to keep me from my own internal struggle to sin, in verse 133, and to keep me from the external oppression that tempts me to sin, in verse 134. So let's look there. 133, look, keep steady my steps according to your promise, and notice this, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. See, I need you to keep me on the straight and narrow, and I need you to stop sin from owning me from getting dominion over me. Because apart from your help, sin will own me. It will get dominion over me. He's dealing with the internal struggle to sin first. The external struggle comes up in verse 134. Keep me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. In other words, I need you to redeem me or redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. I wanna walk in holiness. Let's talk about the internal struggle first. I wanna walk in holiness, but I'm incapable of doing so without you carrying me along. I don't need to belabor the point because we all know the constant internal temptation to sin, don't we? We all know it. I'm sure if you're like me, the Psalm of Asaph, Psalm 73, you feel like it could be one of your bylines. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Don't you feel like that could be like your life theme? God is good to his people. But as for me, <laughs> my feet almost stumbled. My feet nearly slipped. It's like a summary of my day. God is good to me, but my feet almost stumbled. The internal temptation to sin is strong. It's a battle. It's a battle we lose every day if the Lord does not keep us from falling. Think also about the external oppression that tempts us to sin. Look at verse 134. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. It's an interesting connection he makes there. Redeem me from man's oppression. In other words, there are men who are oppressing me. I need you to redeem me so that I might keep your precepts. I won't keep them if you don't. His concern is that the external oppression of man is tempting him continually to sin. So I need redemption so that I might not sin. It's interesting in two ways, but let me ask this question first. How can oppression from man or the world tempt us to sin? Well, think about our current governor and his hypocritical tyranny. I don't know about you, but when everything was shut down and we were told that we couldn't be inside of a restaurant, and we certainly had to wear masks and be socially distanced, and then we see the governor with his comrades, like a scene from Animal Farm, sitting inside the building, having dinner in a fancy restaurant, I thought to myself, all humans are equal, but some humans are more equal than others. This is a tyrant. Who's a hypocrite? That's what I thought. And I was tempted to sin. Anybody else? September 14th is coming up, a recall election. We face that. We make a decision. You make a decision. And here's my encouragement to you. Vote your conscience and don't be tempted to sin or avoid the temptation to sin. What do I mean by that? You are to honor the emperor. In other words, the Lord has appointed this man the governor. And you're to respect him and his office. You're not to use your mouth or your actions to sin against him. That doesn't mean you should vote for him and keep him in office. But that does mean you shouldn't speak sinfully about him. The greatest thing that could happen September 14th would not be that Gavin Newsom is recalled, though that would give me much joy, if you weren't aware already. The greatest thing that could happen September 14th is that someone tells Gavin Newsom the gospel and he turns to Christ and is saved and becomes our brother. We need to keep that in mind. The worst thing that could happen September 14th is not that Gavin doesn't get recalled. The worst thing that could happen September 14th is that you all sin when you don't like the result. Think of the wife with an oppressive husband. Is it difficult for a wife with an oppressive, sinful husband to keep herself from sin? Yes. Think of a husband with a nagging wife. Is it difficult when she's continually undermining his leadership for him to not sin? Yes. Think of children with parents who are harsh, Is it difficult to not sin when your parents are harsh? Yes. Think of being an employee with an ungodly and unjust employer. Is it difficult to restrain yourself from sin? Yes. In all these cases, you can see how you're tempted to sin. David is saying, remove me from this oppression. Notice the phrase, that I may keep your precepts. In other words, remove me from man's oppression that I might not sin. Think of David's concern. His concern isn't to be free of oppression. His concern is to be free of oppression that he might not sin, that he may walk in godliness. He doesn't pray, remove me from this oppression so that I might know freedom and peace. Remove me so that I might not sin against you, Lord. Freedom from oppression is a good for which we should ask the Lord. But holiness is the good we should seek above all. We should seek it above all. Your county supervisors, your city councilmen, your elected board representatives, your governor, your president, your congress, your state senate, your legislature, your judicial system, your police force, your firefighters, whatever. Your spouse, we can go down the list. Your employer, they may all oppress you. And your greatest concern in freedom from that oppression is not that you're just free to do what you want, but that you're free from the oppression so that you might not sin because your great concern is your holiness before God our greatest fear should not be continued suffering under an oppressor our greatest fear should be sinning against our holy God finally let's look at David's third emphasis and this one will come quickly it's just one verse verse 136 he grieves over the rejection of both god and his word my eyes shed streams of tears Because people do not keep your law. Why do David's eyes shed streams of tears? This language here is a figure of speech that um, could be translated, rivers of tears run down my face. My eyes shed streams of tears. Why? Because people do not keep your law. Because they, actually, the word here in Hebrew is this pronoun, they, Because they do not keep your law. They are the people who are opposing him and persecuting him. They are men like King Saul or his son Absalom, whom he loves. They are the subjects of his own kingdom. They do not keep God's law. They dishonor God's name. And they will face God's just wrath. But notice, my eyes shed streams of tears because I really don't like my current life situation. That's not what he says. My eyes shed streams of tears because they do not keep your law. These are tears of deep sorrow for God's dishonor. Men are dishonoring God and that grieves him. And they are tears of deep sorrow for the miseries that sinners are bringing upon themselves. We see this language in Lamentations and in Jeremiah as God's appointed leaders weep over the lawlessness and coming destruction of God's people. Please note this, David is not weeping because of the oppression he's enduring. This is not self-pity. These are not tears of self-pity. He's weeping because they, his oppressors, do not keep the law of God. This is the pity of a man whose heart is like the Lord's. He is heartbroken because God's name is disparaged, God's law is disregarded, and God's judgment is directed at his people. That breaks his heart. Look at Luke 19. You'll see this with Jesus. Luke 19 and verse 41 And when he drew near and saw the city, that's Jesus drawing near. When is this? This is just after the triumphal entry. This is during the last week of his life when he knows his own people are going to betray him at the cross. As he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, And surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. In other words, Jesus is weeping because he's come to save his people and they don't see it. And so he knows what's coming for them is God's righteous wrath. And he's weeping over them. The Lord Jesus is weeping over the very people who are his oppressors the very people who falsely convict him and beat him and crucify him. He's weeping over them, but his heart is that they would be saved. His desire is that God's people would honor his name. I suppose I have a question. When you see an unbeliever, an oppressor, someone who actually comes after you in some way, do you ever have this response? Because this is the response of the Lord's prophets. This is the response of the Lord's king. This is the response of the Lord Jesus. Is that ever our response? How many of us see our elected leaders acting wickedly and weep over them? How about our spouse who's acting unrighteously? Or our boss who's unjust? How many of us do that? That's the heart of our Lord. That's the work of his grace in his prophets. That's the work that you see in the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul in Romans 9, and maybe it's the most, in some sense, The passage that's dripping with the most irony because how it's used today. The Apostle Paul in Romans 9 lays out the doctrine of sovereign election, a doctrine that's often used as a bludgeon for people to shame each other on Facebook for being theologically inept. Don't you know about God's. Romans 9, we've got our stuff together. What's your problem? This is a passage in which Paul says, My heart is broken. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness, Holy Spirit, that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I would be damned to save them, the very people who are cursing me and jailing me and beating me, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart over their lostness, over their dishonoring of God's name, over the condemnation coming from them. That's the context in which he teaches us about election. And then it's bracketed in chapter 10 when he says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. His interest isn't to use these doctrinal passages to shame ignorant people. His interest is to hold up this doctrine to explain his sorrow for their lack of salvation and his desire to see them come to a knowledge of the truth so that they might be saved. Do you have a heart like that? I don't know that I do. I pray the Lord gives me a heart like that. I pray that I can sing this psalm with David and that I don't feel like I have to mouth this part. My eyes are filled with tears because they don't obey your law. Tears, or eyes are filled with, not really. My eyes aren't really filled with tears, but someone's are somewhere, I'm sure. Are you someone who does not trust the Lord? Are you walking in your own ways? Are you filled with pride such that you will not repent of your sin and cast your soul and faith upon Jesus? Listen, if you don't trust the Lord Jesus, then God's wrath is coming for you. You've disobeyed God's law, and you will incur the miseries of all those who do. But please see his heart for you. He is not delighted that God's wrath is coming for your sin. The Lord Jesus weeps over that reality. It gives us no pleasure to tell you that all those who remain in their sins are damned to eternal hell. That is not something we're pleased to say, but it does give us great pleasure to tell you that Jesus saves. Look to him, trust him, follow him, believe in his name. Is your heart, believers, affected by dishonor for God's name and the judgment that comes upon them? Are we grieved in this same way? The Holy Spirit was making Paul like Christ. That's why his zeal for the honor of God's name was what it was. That's why his sorrow and grief over the lostness of his people was what it was. It's only as we see the wondrous word of God for what it is and pant after it and turn to God and recognize our desperate daily need for his grace that we're going to develop a heart that grieves for the honor of his name and the judgment of those who do not believe. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, do this work in us. We certainly know that we can't do it. We recognize that we ought to be those who pant after your word and yet recognize that so often we are cold and callous and disinterested. We repent of our sins and we give thanks for your grace and ask your Spirit to cause us to pant after the word. We recognize that we need your grace to teach us to preserve us. We need you to be actively at work in us all the time or walk away in sin. And yet we also recognize that we are so often prideful and self-reliant and looking to anything other than your grace. We repent of that and ask that your spirit would be at work in our hearts to cause us to see our constant need for you. Father, we pray that you would cause us to have hearts like Christ, like the prophets, like we see with David in this psalm, as we see with the Apostle Paul, who grieve over the dishonoring of your name and the miseries that come upon those who do. Cause us to know grace, the glories of grace, the depths of our own sin that you've saved us from in such a way that we see others in this same way that we can sing with David of your wondrous word, of the glorious grace there is in you, and that we can grieve with him over the dishonoring of your name and the suffering of those who do. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.